Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new and unique and meaningful. And I hope you find this to be new and unique and meaningful. Through this program, we are excited to be connecting you to people in and stories about Israel and and give you a window to look through about aspects here in Israel that you might not know about. We want this program to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions that you have or be in touch on our website, genesis123.co. Also, please feel free to share this program with anybody who you know might find it of interest. I am really excited to have a special guest with me today, um, honestly, because we only really just met uh, last week. And because it's it, it was such an engaging dialogue initially, but also it's a topic that I have found really, really important, and I hope you will too. Um, Rolene Marks is a freelance journalist and broadcaster and keynote speaker who appears on a number of international radio and TV programs. She's published in numerous global uh, publications online, and, and actually, it was an article that she wrote recently that connected me with her. Um, she is the owner of Rolene Marks Consulting, specializing in media, public relations, consulting on Jewish and Israel-related topics, as well as media training, both with local and international clients, local, of course, being here in Israel, and varied PR companies, nonprofits, security businesses, strategic planning, high-tech, and commercial enterprises. Rolene can be heard every day on Chai FM, a Johannesburg, South Africa-based radio station, and is a regular correspondent on Channel News Asia, and has been invited to speak to numerous international audiences, including in Brazil, Germany, Australia, South Africa, Israel, the U.S., and the U.S. UN Alliance of Civilizations and others. In 2007, Rolene participated in the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs Young Jewish Diplomats Leadership Course and the IUA Kesher Leadership Academy. She currently lives in Modi'in in central Israel and volunteers for WIZO and is a member of the world executive uh, there and holding the public diplomacy portfolio and previously represented the organization and the World Zionist Congress. Rolene is a co-founder of Lay of the Land www.layoftheland.online, host of the Israel Brief on YouTube and co-founder of the Israel-South Africa Policy Forum. She is a PhD candidate. This is impresses me a lot, especially where a PhD candidate in the field of political anti-Semitism at the University of Middlesex in London. Now, I'm, I'm impressed on that alone, but somewhere in London, they care about uh, political anti-Semitism to be able to give you a degree in that, Rolene. And I have to say, I'm just really, really thrilled and grateful that you're here with us today. Welcome. Thank you so much. And the pleasure is all mine. And just on the subject of the University of Middlesex, they've adopted the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. So hugely important as uh, we, we go ahead. That's a very big deal because uh, because we don't assume that from uh, most places in Europe, much less 
academic settings? A lot of uh, UK-based universities are starting to uh, adopt IRA, which is really, really something so important because the situation on campuses, and I think the subject that we're going to talk about today, does affect young people on our campuses. And, and Jewish students feel greatly threatened. They feel their personal safety is under threat on university campuses, especially in the United States. So hopefully more universities around the world will start to uh, follow uh, some of these UK-based universities and adopt IRA, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism. And while it allows for criticism of Israeli policy, and I mean, you and I know it's a national sport here in Israel to, to criticize the government, but uh, issues of questioning Israel's legitimization right. as a sovereign state is anti-Semitic. And that is really why today's conversation is so important because it's part of that assault on our sovereignty. That's right. First of all, that's right. And thank you. And you've set up, I haven't even introduced what we're talking about yet today. Um, but but you're right. And and I you've got given me now two reasons to invite you back for uh for other topics. So we'll we'll just use that as a teaser for subsequent conversations. But today uh, we're 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 speaking now because of the anniversary that's taking place this month and the conference that's taking place next week in New York on the on the twentieth uh, anniversary of the Durban conference, which was formerly known as the World Conference on Racism, that took place in Dur- uh, in Durban, South Africa, twenty years ago. Um, and and it's important, and we'll get into why. But first, really, and I just wanted to, we're going to talk about that and and how this conference on racism globally became an Israel bashing conference. But I'd like to uh, speak uh, personally with you about you and your background, obviously from the accent, you're from South Africa. Um, what was it like growing up Jewish in South Africa and how and and what made you want to come to Israel? Well, I'm going to be a typical Israeli and answer right to left. So what brought me to back to Israel was definitely my sense of Zionism and coming home. For me, it was more of a pull factor rather than a push factor. But growing up in South Africa at the height of the state of emergency years uh, during the apartheid regime, this was when the uh, apartheid government was in office. This was when the laws of apartheid, which were very, very specific laws that uh, governed every aspect of a person's life and were based on race, were based on the inherent belief or ideology of keeping the races separate and where you had a minority white community ruling over the majority black community or anyone that was deemed of color. You know, I know in the the USA, you use a term uh, colored, which is seen as derogatory almost. In South Africa at the time, it was a terminology used to explain people who were of mixed race, and they were also greatly discriminated against, as were people of Indian background and people who they generally saw as uh, non-white, so to speak. I mean, I, I can also remember growing up as a Jew, while we uh, lived a comfortable life, as, as many white people did, uh, we were also prohibited from joining a lot of places. 
I remember being at school and not being allowed to join the girl guides because Jews weren't allowed. But growing up, uh, I was part of a Zionist youth movement. And we, it was really ingrained in us that uh, apartheid, the laws that were discriminatory, um, they, they almost harken back to a very, very difficult and dark time in Jewish history. Uh, and, and that as Jews and that as Zionists, it didn't fit our uh, tenets as, uh, as Jews. It was not part of what we saw as tikkun olam. And the Jewish community... Um, let's, let's just define tikkun olam for people who don't know. That's sort of a, a Jewish um, term that, that literally means uh, repair of the world, but, but, but do, doing good things, building, building and leaving a good mark. Is that a fair translation? I, I think that's, that's fair to say. And, you know, as a young uh, girl and then teenager and then uh, madricha, leader of the youth movement, we really started to question this government that was in place that discriminated against our fellow countrymen I remember, you know, so many episodes from my life that, that are so vivid in, in my memory. One was as a little girl uh, being taken to the park by our domestic worker. Uh, at the time, that was one of the only jobs that Black women were able to get because of the laws prohibiting them uh, entering the, uh, the, the workforce. Uh, and I remember going to the park and our, our nanny sitting on the grass. And I said to her, why don't you sit on the bench? You know, don't you like the bench? I was a little girl at the time. And she said to me, I'm not allowed to. And that's, that stuck in my mind. And um, the fact that I had uh, a little girl that would come in the, during the school holidays or vacations and play with me. Her name was Minnie, but she wasn't allowed to come to the public swimming pool with me. And, and, you know, my, my mind started to compute that something was terribly wrong. And joining a Zionist uh, youth movement, myself being a, and I hate to use the term victim, uh, of uh, anti-Semitism at school, my parents wanted me to, uh, to make Jewish friends. And I went to the, the Zionist youth movement where we were told that, you know, this is not right. And, and over the years, uh, we started to, to be more active. We started to march against the apartheid regime. I remember very vividly uh, around the age of about 14, marching with youth from, uh, from other movements, uh, from uh, the black community and being filmed. We were filmed and we were questioned by the police. I remember- What, what, was, what was it like to be questioned when you were you're marching, you're being question on the side of the road or would they come and follow up and find you and interrogate you? Well, luckily being a minor, I wasn't pulled into to a police station, but they would come up to you, they would intimidate you, they would put the camera in your face. Uh -huh. uh, they would make it very obvious they were watching you, they would come up to you, what are you doing here? Why are you marching? And uh, Jewish children or Jewish youth older than that, I can uh, one example is the South African Union of Jewish Students at the universities. They were very, very active on campuses. And there are many, many stories of students being arrested, uh, of students being uh, interrogated in, in some very questionable uh, ways. In fact, there's a book called Cutting Through the Mountain, 
which shares the stories of uh, Jewish South African anti-apartheid activists. There's a famous story um, in there of a woman called Maxine Hart, uh, one of the leaders of soldiers who was uh, held in solitary confinement, uh, who was almost tortured, who was questioned relentlessly. You know, this was a student. Uh, uh, another one of my colleagues can tell you about how his professor at university, his law professor, who was an anti-apartheid activist, was taken away for questioning, and they found out he was subsequently shot in the head. Oh, God. Uh, Jewish musicians like Johnny Clegg and his band uh, Juluka, very famous uh, around the world, using music to oppose the apartheid regime. Wow. The lone opposition in uh, the South African parliament was a Jewish Zionist woman by the name of Helen Sussman, who was the lone voice against uh, apartheid. So it, it was very much ingrained uh, uh, in our um, ideology that this was wrong, that we had to do something. And although the South African Jewish community faces or faced a lot of criticism for not standing up as a community, we certainly fought disproportionately, and I use that term uh, deliberately, uh, to, to the size of us, we fought the system. Uh, right. and, and today we've got people like um, uh, Justice L.B. Sachs, very, very famous anti-apartheid activist uh, who uh, lost a hand, lost his sight during the, um, uh, during the apartheid years, who... Uh, who is now a constitutional court uh, justice and who helped draft uh, the constitution of South Africa, as is a, a good friend of mine, Howard Saxty, also uh, a member of the South African Union of Jewish Students, who was very, very active in fighting the regime at the time. Let me let me ask a question. You mentioned disproportionate and I, uh, disproportionate representation and activism among the Jewish community. Um, I wanted to go two directions. First of all, What's the proportion when you grew up? And I think the, the community in South Africa now is about 100,000 people. Is that, is that correct? Or is it even less? Uh, sadly, today, the community has dwindled. We're about, I would put it at about 50,000 people. In its heyday, in its peak, it was about 130,000. Uh, Some people immigrated due to the political situation uh, of the time. Um, you know, many people didn't want to live and uh, uh, what they saw was a discriminatory regime. Uh, many people during the uh, swap over to democracy when there were rumors that there would be civil war, uh, in fact, that transition was very, very peaceful. It was an extraordinary moment. I remember my first time voting uh, was in those democratic elections and, and just the extraordinary experience of lining up to vote with many of my, my black um, fellow ah. countrymen who had never voted before. Uh, and this just uh, incredible opportunity that everything they had fought for was coming to fruition. And then the years following that where unfortunately South Africa has seen uh, a great rise in crime, uh, great political unrest, some of it happening just last month. And, and that has led many people wanting to leave the country if they have the means to. But as a Jew, you weren't prevented from voting, were you? As a Jew, I wasn't prevented from voting. Uh, in, in fact, it, it was quite an incredible moment 
to be a part of it with with everybody that you know the very moving images we saw of black people in the rural areas some of the elderly being pushed in wheelbarrows wow. to the the polling station so that they could vote for the first time but as a Jew I wasn't prevented from voting and as a woman I wasn't prevented from voting you know we used to say during the apartheid years uh, South Africa democracy for some but not for all uh, you know, if you were, if you had, uh, oh, that was, that was, that was, I mean, it was that, that clear. I mean, it wasn't even, no one pretended that it was only democratic for white people. Uh, well, that's what we would say when we were opposing the, the regime. Yes. I were, see. I see. Because they would say, you know, we were, but, but, but we are democratic people vote, but you're democratic for some and not for all. But those, the, the apartheid laws, which were very, very specifically, legislated laws that were part of the the, uh, the the government's legislation that deemed black people, people of color, people who weren't pure white, so to speak, as um, second class citizens. And, and, and the laws governed every aspect of their lives, the freedom of movement, the freedom of expression, uh, the right to education, uh, the miscegenation act, uh, right until where you could execute your ablutions. The laws governed every aspect of a person's life. And this is what people need to, to understand about uh, apartheid. And, and today we see that term thrown around very carelessly. Right. It was specific to, to South Africa. It was very specific to the South African narrative and um, experience. It was extremely, extremely difficult uh, and persecutory to the people of the time that were the victims of these laws. Was there anything in South Africa at the time that was not segregated? Everything was segregated. Everything was segregated. Uh, People, my orientation on uh, growing up in America, even though I'm too young to remember it myself, is the segregation in the South and the United States uh, that that blacks could only drink from certain water fountains and ride in the back of the bus and and uh, live in certain neighborhoods? What was busing everything like was similar? Was everything was in parallel? Even even I remember a hospital that was built in parallel, one half for blacks and another half for for whites. It, it was so much that you didn't have black people sitting at the back of the bus, black people at separate buses. I see. And inferior buses, everything was separated. Uh, you, you know, uh, everything was limited to, to what a black person uh, could do and could achieve. Uh, and we had, you know, the, the Separate Amenities Act, which is, you know, what you allude to, separate drinking fountains, separate ablution facilities, everything. This is why it is so specific to uh, South Africa, every aspect of a person's life was governed by the laws of apartheid. Uh, Black people had to walk around carrying a pass where they were allowed to go, the hours they were allowed to do that. If they didn't show their pass or if they were out of the the remit of their pass, they were arrested. Got it. So this is... This is all a great, if you will, background for where I want to take the conversation. But let's rewind a drop to 20 years ago. Now, I'm aware of the outcome of the Durban conference. And, I, and it's, of course, beyond ironic 
that it was in South Africa that this is where the conference of the World Conference on Racism took place. I suppose that was deliberate. Were you as a South African aware going into this Durban conference about what was that what was going to be coming out of it, that it was going to be this massive anti-Israel and anti-Semitic event? Or was that just something that everyone was surprised about? This is a great question. Well, first of all, let's unpack why it was in South Africa. It was extremely deliberate uh, because as we now know, the, the strategy behind the scenes was to push this BDS, this boycott, divestment and sanctions movement into global consciousness and to launch this global assault on Israel's sovereignty uh, as a nation state of the Jewish people. And why choose South Africa? Because if you're going to make apartheid the central charge of this movement and of this campaign uh, to uh, delegitimize the Jewish state, you need to treat Israel as a pariah. You need to treat Israel the same as South Africa was treated during the apartheid uh, years. You need to make Israel feel that they're no longer welcome at the uh, family of nations. So holding this conference in Durban, where the optics are very much about racism, the fight against racism, and you're sitting in the country that was the birthplace and the place that would see the defeat of apartheid. Now, at the time, we had no idea what was coming. Uh, what we saw coming out of that conference was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, I, I remember at the time, the South African Zionist Federation and the South African Jewish Board of Deputies to, to help uh, combat some of the horrendous uh, stuff that we were seeing come out of the media, uh, formed a volunteer group of which I'm still a part of 20 years later, called the media team. And we tried to respond as much as we could to some of the disgraceful um, invective in the media. But I don't think Israel, I don't think the uh, Western countries were quite prepared for what that conference had descended into. We know that many countries, including the Republic of Ireland, the United States, various others, uh, definitely Israel got up and walked out because all it descended into was a, a, a conference deliberately aimed at attacking Israel and the Jewish people. This on a continent that has uh, seen and still sees today incredible racism, incredible civil wars, incredible uh, discrimination, and was only several years after the Rwandan genocide. Right. So we were completely, completely... Uh, I would say, quite frankly, caught unawares for what was coming. Got it. So, so that the so so the, there's probably too much history to go into, and I and therefore and encourage anyone to be in touch, and we'll provide more background if people want to reach out at inspirationfromzion at gmail dot com. But basically, that was the platform, and it was it was it was not organic. It was premeditated to create a new foundation to blame and, and, and delegitimize the state of Israel using, using apartheid as the canard. Now, I, I noted just before we began to speak that as of now, I might be wrong, 10 countries, all Western countries, are boycotting 
the Durban, what's called Durban 4, the new conference that's taking place on September uh, 22nd. Um, but it still seems to me that as egregious as the conference was, with no real expectation that anything genuinely discussing racism in Africa, much less the rest of the world, and, and, and I would argue even now in the last year and a half of what's been happening, again, my orientation um, being born in America, it, it's really in the, in the spotlight uh, there, is that, is that Israel's going to come out again as being bashed. Do you see any, is, am I off base on any of that? Or, or is this just going to be a renewal of the original conference 20 years ago? I don't think you're off base at all. I mean, even if you look on the United Nations website and you look at how they're promoting it, the, the big picture on, on the top of their page is Zionism again, is, is racism. Uh-huh. And, and you know, in, in, in our business, in media, optics are very important. It's, it's, it's what the eye sees. And um, you have organizations like Human Rights Watch, which I believe are on a very, very deliberate path to push as much of an anti-Israel agenda as humanly possible. They've done it with the, their ridiculous crossing the threshold report, which uh, calls Israel an apartheid state. I mean, they've gone so far as to, um, to redefine the definition of apartheid. You see Ken Roth there, uh, uh, their director, tweeting every single day, Israel, 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 at the expense of other conflicts around the world. You've got um, organizations understanding that at, mo at the moment, while we are having critical and very, very important and long overdue conversations about race and race relations, you can absolutely bet your bottom dollar that that is going to be co-opted to push an uh, anti-Israel agenda. Um, I, I think you're going to see this incredible push with the apartheid uh, analogy and I think Western countries, countries like Germany, countries like Austria, countries like the United States that have already deemed BDS to be an anti-Semitic uh, organization can see this happening. Uh, how well prepared they are, it's going to remain to be seen. But uh, I think you've seen um, Western countries, the United Kingdom, Australia, various others, very, very concerned at the trajectory of this. Uh, conference. Uh, we also know that the United Nations almost has an obsessive fetish with yes. uh, anti-Israel rhetoric. But there is this incredible focus on Israel, again, like Human Rights Watch and various others, at the expense of other conflicts around the world. So they're looking for this excuse to, to push this narrative. Uh, and also people look at the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians at uh, a very um, at a very shallow level. People don't understand the history. They don't understand right. the complexities and the nuances. Uh, a lot of this, we have the media to blame for that because they're not presenting the, the, the uh, complexity on the ground Correct. As it exists. Correct. So, so right, and and those are that's that's indeed another conversation. I want to address uh, BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, both as a concept and 
as a as you alluded to as a movement. But first, let's debunk some of the notion uh, of of why Israel is in fact not an apartheid state. Um, I, I think that I can list a lot of them, but in fairness, I don't live and breathe it, and it's something that that is probably something that you not so probably something that's why we're having the conversation why uh why we're having this conversation and and w- that you can speak of with with uh without any preparation but you just said something that was really interesting in terms of the UN um and and that's an appropriate way of of taking this conversation when you see the United Nations and and as a subset of the, this conference supposed conference on racism with its um, obsessive focus on Israel, not only is it wrong and unjust, but as you alluded when we spoke last week in a different context, it eliminates all of the other social, uh, racial, and other serious problems that are taking place around the world to pile on Israel. And I don't want to go into all of those, but you made a very good point. I think it was the first thing that you said when we spoke last week about why Israel is not an apartheid state and what's the problem with that. Can you illuminate some of it? Well, absolutely. Before I go into that, I think it's also very important to understand what the modus operandi of this organization is. Uh, They know they're not going to defeat Israel militarily. Uh, They know that the best way to try and bring about the end of the Jewish nation state as as they uh, see it is to make uh, Israel a pariah uh, and cut off from the rest of the world, and therefore the, the country is going to magically fall apart. Uh, what is very, very important to note is that during the apartheid years, nobody wanted the Republic of South Africa to cease to exist. They wanted the racist laws of the country to change. They didn't right. want to see the end. Uh, um, to me, BDS in itself is racist and apartheid because you're saying that all the other nations of the world have a right to exist. Every other nation is uh, allowed to organize themselves uh, politically and to have a national liberation movement, except for the Jewish people. And Zionism, as my shirt says, Zionism is a human right. Zionism is our national liberation uh, movement. Uh, and, and that's why, to me, BDS, and I know I'm slightly off the subject, is inherently okay. racist. Israel is a country like every other with uh, complexities and challenges, racism being one of them. We do have uh, racism from time to time, as does every other country in the world. Correct. Are we an apartheid state? Absolutely not. Um, Apartheid, as I said before, was state legislated laws where a minority governed over a majority based on on race, based on making them second-class citizens, based on denying them a lot of their inalienable rights. Israel is a democracy. I mean, we probably at the moment have our most democratic government we've ever had. Uh, you know, Ben-Gurion said to, uh, to live in Israel, you must be a realist and believe in miracles. And we Correct. have at the moment 
a very, very democratic government, whether people like it or not, and that's a separate discussion, but you've got sitting in this government, which represents parties from the left to the right, you've got a, a, an Arab party called Ra'am, which were the make or break party when it came to forming a, a ruling coalition. Just last week, we had a, a Knesset committee hearing on coronavirus, where the head of the, the committee speaking was a man called Ahmed TV, who's somebody that's anti the state, but he's that's allowed right. that representation in government because Israel's a democracy. Israel is a democracy, democracy, and I've never heard of a democracy, but we're a democracy where every citizen of voter eligible age has the right to vote. Uh, we recognize by Freedom House as having one of the most a free and democratic media in the world. I mean, sometimes you want to pull your hair out at some of the, <laughs> the media coverage in Israel and you think, you know, Shanda, I mean, you guys write such, but that's a democracy. Right. So let, let me just let me just pick up on that. You you mentioned the one party Ram that's sitting in the government. This is happens to be the first time. You mentioned an, uh, Ahmed Tibi, who represents a coalition of three other parties that are not in the government that are anti the the government, if not the legitimacy of the state. Um, I suspect that in the South African Parliament during apartheid, there were no blacks or colored people. Absolutely not. Right. Okay. So they 20... had no right to vote and they had no right to organize to themselves politically and, and, and run for office. So the fact that we have twenty approximately 20% of the country are Arab citizens uh, with different ethnicities uh, among them and they and they're represented. And and I think it's a fair statement. I've not seen anything to disprove it, and I and I always try to be honest about any, anything that I'm doing. But I think probably the major, whether people like the government or not, I think most people in the country are okay with an Arab representation and a a a proper investment in the social issues that affect the Arab community here, um, and that obviously would not have been the case in, in South Africa. Well, absolutely. You know, we're going to see a budget passed, which gives a significant increase to the budget that is going to be given to the Arab community to improve their living uh, situation. We have uh, Arabs serving in all sectors of society, in the army, in, the, in, in academia, uh, in, in the media, in every aspect of society with the right to question the government. Uh, Israel is a democracy so great. We we did it four times in the last uh, couple of years. Great or dysfunctional. It could go both ways. You know, this, this microscope that is on Israel. I mean, look at our partners. You've got um, Mahmoud Abbas in the 17th year of his four-year term. It's extraordinary. And, and no elections there. You've had Ismail right. Haniyeh just re-elected again, head of Hamas in Gaza. Where were the elections in the Gaza Strip, you don't have freedom of movement. You, we have a situation in Ramallah where there are protests against um, uh, the, the ruling uh, Palestinian ah, Especially now, that's correct. With, me, with um, members of the media being arrested every single day. In Israel, it is our national sport. We have a robust media that parodies the government and criticizes the government and pulls apart 
everything. And even though sometimes it might drive us mad as citizens of this country, it's a democracy that we can be uh, proud of. I know that some Very. people watching this might say, but wait a minute. Uh, you have a law of return that only recognizes uh, people who are, are Jewish, and, as does many countries around the world who have a law of return. I hear some of you, um, they're saying, yeah, but wait a minute, you're talking about Israel, but what about the territories? And it's, it's, it's something very important. Uh, you know, we have a, a, a situation, uh, we, we uh, where the uh, West Bank, we're not going to talk about Gaza because that's uh, ruled by Hamas. We have a situation in uh, what we call the disputed territories, because uh, if you actually look at it under international laws, it's disputed territories because it's still Correct. under dispute. And countries like Australia recognize the West Bank as disputed territory, where you've right. got po pockets of land all divided up, uh, some ruled by the Palestinian Authority, some under Israel, Israeli sovereignty, and some that uh, are, are mixed. And it's complicated. But I'm going to quote a very, very left-leaning anti-apartheid um, activist, South African journalist called Hirsch Goodman, who says, if you're going to call that, and if you're going to call Israel an apartheid state, it's disingenuous. Uh, somebody right. like Benjamin Pogrant, also an Israeli, former South African. Uh, he, he was the editor of the Rand Daily Mail, uh, a publication during the apartheid years. He was arrested, I don't know how many times, for opposing the apartheid regime, saying Israel has many complexities, but it's not an apartheid state. You know, I wrote that article saying South Africans living in Israel need to lead the fight against this because we know better than anybody. We, we right. grew up in the system. We fought the system. Uh, many of us live here. Many of us made Aliyah here because of the system. We know better than, uh, than other people what uh, apartheid was. And we are saying we might have our issues. We might have our challenges. We might have sometimes uh, uh, racism, as does every other country but we are not an apartheid state. Correct. To call us an apartheid state not only is disingenuous, but insults the very memory and experience and narrative of the victims of apartheid. That's so important because especially today, and, and it comes, I believe, more from people on the left, and this is not a left versus right thing, but you find that the the notion the 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 canard of Israel being a, a, an apartheid state and and the support of BDS more coming from the left yet yet with the um, uh, hyper awareness of racial issues and identity politics to take away from the actual suffering that Black South Africans endured for decades. Is really is really a horror in and of itself, and I I love that you made that point because I think that if we're talking, we have to speak honestly, and I find it it cheapens. First of all, it, it it it's a complete disregard, as some of the correctly noted left wing South African uh, authors who you who you mentioned. No, we have our problems. We have problems, but indeed. But let's not cheapen it and call it apartheid. Let's not cheapen it because it dishonors the memory of those who actually suffered it. And let's and let's actually focus on the issues. And the truth of the matter is, 
and um and and I'll have a conversation about this with with other people where I live over the green line in in what people call the West Bank. I'm in the Judean mountains. We we live among people who are not citizens, but they don't want to be citizens. That's also another issue. It's a disputed territory. This is not a minority ruling over a majority. And and there are people who actually are are very well respected. And there's a lot of over there's a lot of um there's a lot of coexistence that people don't understand. So it, uh, I'm glad that you brought up the points that you did in terms of the actual experience in South Africa as to why Israel is not an apartheid state. And we can go into that. And I'm, I'm glad to provide more details um, as well as a link to your article and, and other things for people who want to reach out. Let's, ne- let's now move before we wrap up to BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions. That's a movement which became an or an or loosely knit organization that people use to delegitimize Israel ostensibly through economic um, economic means to boycott Israeli uh, enterprises or people that or, or institutions that operate in Israel. But as you correctly uh, noted, it's uh, unlike those who were protesting apartheid in South Africa which was to change policy, BDS is actually delegitimizing the state of Israel. Can you go into some of the more obvious or maybe the more the less obvious issues relating to BDS and why that's problematic? Well, I think, first of all, anybody who's watching this, go onto the BDS website. They state quite uh, categorically, this is Omar Baguti, he states quite uh, categorically that he wants the end of the state of Israel. He doesn't say we don't like the policy of settlements. We don't like the policy of this. We don't like the policy of that, uh, which is legitimate criticism. And of course, you can argue for both sides. He states quite categorically, we want the end of the nation state of Jewish people. You hear them chanting all the time, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What do they think that means? That is a call for annihilation. That is a call to say the state of Israel must cease to exist. Um, They say everyone has the right to to a nationhood, to inalienable rights, to to have a movement, to national identity, except the Jewish people. I mean, that to me, of course, is apartheid because you're singling out uh, a sector of society for discrimination based on... Our ethnicity. And that's not racist, but it's racist. Race, it, we're not, right, exactly. Well, anti-Semitism to me is, is racist because you, you're singling us out on our ethnicity and, and, and Jews right. look, we don't all look the same. Correct. We, all, we come from different uh, parts of the world and we have different um, ethnicities. Uh, but, but also their rationale is that boycotts work for South Africa. No, boycotts did not work for South Africa. Two brave leaders that looked at the situation, that spoke to those brave enough to sit and talk and to find resolution, brought an end to apartheid. Apartheid ended because people wanted an end of it. The South African economy during the apartheid years, believe it or not, was relatively strong. So we didn't have Levi's jeans and we didn't have a lot of other things. But the, the economy, the rent, the, the, uh, the, the 
country at the time was relatively strong. Um, now there is a whole other story due to a whole other different issues, but boycotting serves no purpose. All it does is breaks down opportunity for discourse, breaks down opportunity for cooperation, and breaks down and discourages uh, the building of bridges. BDS will tell you, don't put your business uh, over the green line, don't do uh, whatever, because uh, uh, Israel's an apartheid state. Who do they think are the workers that are going to work in those factories right. and those offices over the green line? Palestinians, but they don't care. They don't care that they are harming the Palestinian population. A, a great person to, to listen to and to reference is Basim Eid. He, he's a Palestinian activist, and he'll tell you straight, Ben and Jerry's boycott, all of this only harms Palestinians. Right. Uh, they will tell you, and this is my favorite, don't go to the state of Israel. What are you afraid of? That you're going to come here and you're going to see that we're uh, maybe not an apartheid state? If you want to prove your theory, by all means. Come and see, right. Come and see for yourself. Right. Um, what we are seeing now, very, very interestingly enough, is African countries saying, you know what, enough is enough of this nonsense. We want to talk to Israel. Just two weeks ago, we were readmitted to the African Union, which is very, very important for us diplomatically, yeah. albeit with, an, with observer status. This is something that BDS are going hysterical over. Well, BDS because has been having a bad year. We have we had peace with four new uh, country, uh, Ma- Ma- Arab countries, two of which are in Africa, um, and 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 ridiculous investment in Israeli uh, companies. One of the best ones that I always admire um, is the fact that year, uh, how many years ago, three four years ago, um, Pepsi, which used to bro- which used to boycott Israel. Um, up until I think the 1980s, um, for, because, not because of a racial reason, but because they wanted they didn't want to be boycotted in turn by the by the Arab League. Um, Pepsi invested a huge amount of money to buy our company SodaStream, the Israeli company SodaStream, which had been op- operating in a industrial park over the Green Line with uh, thousands, if I'm not mistaken, of Palestinian Arab employees who all lost their job. As a result of of the company having to move where uh, into into southern Israel now, so you're 100 percent right. This isn't this the, the whole BDS isn't going very well. Plus, it's wrong. It is wrong, and you know when countries like Germany and Austria who set the benchmark on deciding what is anti-Semitic given their their history, you know there's something wrong. When the Biden administration says that we will fight to oppose. Uh, BDS and anyone who seeks to boycott Israel, and you've got 33 states in the United States saying it's wrong, it contravenes our laws. When you've got the state of Israel saying you want to boycott us, you discriminate against our anti-discrimination laws. We don't have anti-discrimination laws in in, in, uh, South Africa. When you've got um, Arab countries pouring investment into this country, and at the same time putting on blast the Palestinians, for some of their rhetoric, we're seeing a change. But the worrying thing, the worrying factor is that uh, on the 22nd of September, when the United Nations has this mockery or travesty of a conference against racism, and Israel, as we we can no doubt predict, because it's been at the other 
uh, editions of, of Durban, and we see it through resolution after resolution. Israel is going to be the whipping post for, for, for the global world. And we're going to see NGOs like Human Rights Watch and various others salivating for the opportunity. I mean, one thing I do find quite ironic is that uh, um, Human Rights Watch in their report crossing the threshold, which accuses Israel of being a, an apartheid state, that study was commissioned by Omar Shakir, who was the, or who is the director of Israel-Palestine and was kicked out of this country for his BDS activity. So of course, there's more than a little vendetta Got there it. against the state of Israel. The testimony he bases his uh, uh, accounts on come from organizations here like Machsom Watch and Beth Salem and, and Breaking the Silence, which you would never have had in South Africa. Because oh, great point. To the opposition to the apartheid system was crushed. The free and fair press that we have here that we all love and adore. In South Africa, we only got television in 1976. And news was so strictly controlled. My curriculum at school was tightly controlled. I remember wow. in my matric year, I did history, uh, and we studied uh, apartheid, of course, from the National Party perspective. And when I did question it, I was called by my teacher and said, you better not write that in your exam because you will be flunked. Wow. They will, they will fail you, not only... Well, they fail you. I'll get in trouble as your teacher because I don't know. Wow. What, uh, uh, so that is that is uh, the situation that which, we had in South Africa, which is telling because your teacher didn't argue with you to uh, to, to challenge your thinking, but to be safe from uh, from repercussions both for yourself and and for your teacher. And and I just want to underscore a point. A lot of the names that we're Talking about uh, people who are who are following don't necessarily know, but the but but we have an over robust media here, and there's there's no hesitation. I mean, th th there are limits, but there's no hesitation among uh, left wing journalists, television, radio, print media, wherever it may be, writers. Uh, bloggers, anything to to express their views, and 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 I think that's a a great kind of way to juxtapose that they wouldn't have been able to exist in South Africa, whereas here in Israel, it's um, hyper freedom of the of of speech. And it's not only our local journalists; it's the international media also. as well. The international also. media here. No, they can come here and say whatever they want because they're allowed to. Can they say the same thing in Ramallah or in uh, Khan Yunus in Gaza or in uh, Damascus or in Baghdad? Absolutely not. But here in Israel, you can say whatever you want because we have the freedom of the media, even though sometimes you really can pull your hair out with, with uh, some of what is uh, uh, broadcast. So it reminds me, just to wrap up one more, one more question I wanted to ask, but a, a personal story that I hadn't even thought of 
in terms of not even expressing themselves like that in Ramallah, that not being allowed. And in fact, we had, uh, what is the month or month and a half ago, uh, um, uh, an Arab, a uh, Palestinian Arab dissident who was killed by the Palestinian um, security forces. And that's one of the reasons that there are such um, increased protests against the legitimacy of this quote-unquote Palestinian authority that hasn't had an election in 17 years. And you have an 85-year-old man uh, leading the Palestinian Authority. Um, I'm reminded of a conversation I had. Well, it wasn't a conversation. It was an interaction with Jimmy Carter in 1988. 88? Yeah, I believe it was 1988 or 89. Um, he had just come. I was at Emory University. He had just come back from one of his Middle Eastern tours where in every Arab uh, capital, he was bad-mouthing Israel and talking about how Israel was to blame and it was Israel's fault. Now, this is after his presidency and before he became the anti-Israel activist that he has now been known for, um, also um, also using the canard of Israel being apartheid state, and and then coming to Israel and being critical of Israel, and there was it was a, an assembly of, of alumni from Emory University, and there was time for one question, and somehow miraculously I got the question, and I asked him appropriately. It happened to be the week of the anniversary of the uh, signing of the Camp David Accord with Egypt. So I acknowledged him for that. I remembered how I stayed home from school and my father and I were watching the TV as the Camp David Accord was being signed and he got a big smile on his face. And then I said, but President Carter, from an academic perspective, isn't it disingenuous when you travel through the entire Middle East and only criticize Israel and don't have any uh, put any responsibility on the uh, on the other side for a lack of peace? Um, that was before he started using apartheid as a as a term to throw around and his smile went to a frown and I don't remember exactly what he said but he did not like it and he 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 he, to put it nicely challenged me a great deal but he's one of the leaders who I don't hold up and I wanted to go back to a comment that you uh, said before apartheid ended because of two brave leaders Nelson Mandela who who made it his life uh, and 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 suffered a great deal. And F. W. De Klerk, who was elected by um, by by South Africa, uh, the, the the government. He was the president, correct, or prime minister? He was the president. In fact, president. he actually come to Israel numerous on numerous occasions. Right, and and he and for for whatever reason, he changed. And I want to know, just maybe sort of wrapping up this conversation, both if you can describe what happened because I think it's an appropriate way to put in a box this whole Israel apartheid thing and and, and look at the end of the South African experience, but also um, to share specifically some of Nelson Mandela's admiration for Israel, because it's also a bit of a hijacking of the memory of his, of his memory and, and, and of all those who struggled along with him to just say that that um, he was anti-Israel and apartheid is, in Israel is equal to apartheid. Can you comment on some of that? Well, I love that because uh, Nelson Mandela, the lesson that we take from Nelson Mandela is that you make peace with your enemies. Nelson Mandela would talk to everybody. He would speak to Shimon Peres and he would speak to Yasser Arafat. He would speak to uh, the Tibetans and he would speak to the Chinese. Uh, uh, you know, when people criticize um, the, the United Kingdom when he came out of uh, prison and he became our president. The first institution he rejoined before the United Nations was the, was the British Commonwealth. 
was the Commonwealth oh, wow. of, uh, of Nations, something that people don't, don't talk about um, enough. But um, if W. de Klerk got to a point, and, and, and it was more brave on his side because he had these staunch Afrikaners in the National Party, but he got to the point where he realized it could not go on. And it would take great courage to sit down with your perceived enemy. I remember we had a referendum, I was 16 years old at the time, on whether or not we wanted apartheid ended. And the, and the country, or the, the people who could eligibly vote in that referendum were from the age of 16 and upwards, and of course only white. And we voted overwhelmingly to end apartheid. Wow. And these two incredibly brave men uh, came to the table to talk. And we often say here in the Middle East, we need our Middle Eastern Mandela and we need our Middle Eastern de Klerk. Now, both leaders, interestingly enough, have come to Israel and have had good relations with Israel. There's wonderful images of Nelson Mandela uh, embracing Shimon Peres. Uh, there's, there's wonderful... Uh, quotes from uh, Nelson Mandela in his book, The Long Walk to Freedom, that speaks about how much he admired Menachem Begin and uh, the Palmach and how he wanted to model the armed wing of the ANC, the African National Congress, uh, the Umkonto Esizwe, on, uh, on, on, on the Haganah, on, on, uh, on Begin's army. And BDS will often trot out this uh, this quote that they love that says, we won't be free until the Palestinians are free. Forgetting the other- That's a quote of Mandela. That's of Mandela. Forgetting that Nelson Mandela also said, I cannot conceive of an Israel that's not within safe and secure borders. And this was a man who also invited Natan Sharansky, probably one of the most famous Zionists in the world, human rights icon, uh, so refusenik, Soviet dissidents, incredible Jewish icon, to be an observer as we made that transition into wow, democracy. I didn't know that. There were That's a big Exactly. There were incredible friends. It was Jews in South Africa that when Nelson Mandela studied law, gave him uh, the opportunity for him, Oliver Tamba, all the the big names, Walter Sisulu, all these stalwarts, all the great founding fathers of democratic South Africa and of the anti-apartheid movement, their opportunities to work at great risk to themselves. We have the Sadowski family that live here in, um, in Israel that were Nelson Mandela's employers. And while we did have at the Ravonia uh, trials, the ones that would send Nelson Mandela to prison for 27 years, and while the presiding judge at the time may have been Jewish, out of the 12 that were on trial, five of those were Jews, something that's not mentioned oh, uh, wow. uh, uh, very often. Uh, wow. as is the, uh, so Nelson Mandela had an incredible affinity to, to the Jewish community, something shared by Tambo and uh, Sisulu as, uh, as well. Unfortunately, something that's forgotten by the next generation of leaders in South Africa, but that relationship runs deep. And I remember uh, just while we're wrapping up, 
Nelson Mandela, soon after his release, came to uh, a Friday night shul service, came to uh, address the community. We said at the time, which was received with like, silence, that you know he wants to welcome Yasser Arafat, but that was Nelson Mandela standing in a, a synagogue saying, I will talk to him as well, just as I am right. talking, just as I'm talking right. to, to you. And I remember him making a beeline for us, the young people in our Jewish youth movement uh, sweatshirt, coming straight to us to talk to the youth, because for him, that was uh, the future, and, and he recognized in us uh, the work that we did as young Jewish uh, leaders and young Jewish youth that fought against uh, the apartheid system. It's a, it's a great, thank you for that. That's a great and I think really fitting way to wrap up the conversation, although I think we could have another we could go on for for a, a great deal more time, and I hope that we will. And I hope people who are who are listening and and, and watching this uh, will will investigate more themselves. But you know how how forget forget as Israelis how inaccurate and unjust and um, inappropriate the allegation of apartheid here is, and and therefore the delegitimization of um, uh, by the BDS movement. Um, not to change policies, but in fact to, uh, but in fact to discredit and, and eliminate the state of Israel. And then when you look at a man like Nelson Mandela, who was complicated, and I and you and you know that I think more than than I and and probably most people listening. But I'm sad listening to you say that. Going back to the conversation you made, that all of his lifetime of struggle is thrown out the window, is disregarded. When someone writes off Israel as apartheid, when in fact he was the one who was the the face man, the the the, the suffered maybe not the most, but but suffered tremendously as a result, and now they're just using it as a as a way to delegitimize Israel, which which if he were alive, it's probably intuitive that he would have a hard time with as well. Um, it's not for you or me to put words in his mouth, and maybe there are quotes that he's that he's made that we can come back to. Um, but it, it, so I'm glad I'm first of all, I'm glad we're having this conversation, Rolene, I'm so grateful for you. Uh, unfortunately, I don't expect that when the UN convenes on, on September 22nd, that we're going to see anything hopeful. Um, but we can hope. And, and as you also said, we as Israelis and you and I have never discussed domestic politics. So there's plenty to be critical about. And I think it's safe to say at the moment, we don't have the Israeli Nelson Mandela. We don't have somebody, but I think most Israelis will step up and gladly make peace and make very serious accommodations to make that happen. And we certainly don't have that. And it's also telling when you talk about Mandela coming to you, the youth at the time, when we look at the juxtaposition of of what's happening in the Palestinian Authority, it's incitement and the honoring of those who, who are trying to kill us um, that's also for another topic, but I think a fair way of wrapping up a conversation about why Israel, why it is illegitimate to call Israel an apartheid state. Um, so, Rolene, thank you. I, I encourage uh, people to to follow you and 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 everything good that you're doing, and especially now at this time when we're going when the when the topic is going to be much more in the news. And I just want to wrap up this episode by thanking also. Um, the sponsors 
that we're so we're privileged to have with the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. Um, I've never been there. They're dear friends and anyone who's in there, if you, especially if you need something from a greenhouse, go in and get it from them. And if you don't, just go in and give them a hug and thank them for, for, for being sponsors and making this program possible. And the, to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Um, Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation. And all of our programs are, are funded by donations. So I do want to ask everybody to consider joining us to help continue the dialogue like this and building bridges as we do. Um, anyone who would like to join us and sponsor a future episode in honor or in memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch along with questions at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. Uh, we, we do look forward to having your questions and input, especially uh, in general, but especially for our, our Ask the Rabbi section where you can ask any questions about traditional Judaism and we're gonna do our best to answer those. Um, and share this, share this with others so we can widen the dialogue and, con- and, and continue that and provide meaningful conversations about topics that I hope that you're finding of interest um, that relate to Israel and probably won't hear anyone else, uh, hear anywhere else. Uh, until next time, um, I is Jonathan Feldstein uh, with greetings from the Judean mountains in Israel. And I pray that you and your loved ones all continue to stay safe and healthy wherever you are. And may God continue to bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Rolene.